Before we start our podcast, a lot of you have been listening to Swisspreneur for inspiration on your own entrepreneurial journey. And I want to tell you about a great opportunity to get non-dilutive funding and coaching for your startup. If you have an innovative business idea, consider joining Venture. They're Switzerland's leading startup competition, and every year they award over 500,000 Swiss francs in cash prices, McKinsey & Company business consulting packages, and an amazing mentorship program. Submit your free application by March 3rd on venture.ch. Not the brightest brain should go to finance. They should go to invent great things that help the world and not just invent crazy toxic finance instruments. Welcome to the Swisspreneur Show, a podcast about startup stories and learnings from experienced entrepreneurs. Here's your host, Sylvan. Herman, a very well welcome to the Swisspreneur Show. Thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, Sylvan. Thank you for having me. You are the co-founder and ex-CEO of the talent management software company Umantis, and you're also an active investor and avid startup supporter. Yes. First of all, I want to, you know, walk back to the early days. You actually studied strategy and organization at the University of St. Gallen in the 90s. And during that time, you also co-founded Start Global, the largest student-led entrepreneurship conference. So what motivated you to actually start that initiative? Back then, it was not Start Global. It was just a small start. And okay. um, where we were at the university and during uh, my um, Zwischenjahr, the year in between that you do in St. Gallen quite often after the first two years before you finish the second two years, mm -hmm. I also started a school for computer training for kids um, back home in Austria. And then when he came back, there was a group of people inspired by Heinrich von Lichtenstein at the ESC who we were saying, well, we need more entrepreneurship at the universities because back then everyone wanted to go to banking, consulting, and nobody mm -hmm. wanted to be entrepreneur. And we wanted to create these role models um, that students also see entrepreneurship as a career option. And that's what inspired us to do it. Why was it an important cause for you? Why did you say, hey, this is important and not that everybody goes to invest investment banking or consulting? <laughs> That's a really good question. For me, it was so natural because, um, well, I come from a family of entrepreneurs. Mm -hmm. And also I myself have seen as an entrepreneur just doing things. Yeah, yeah. That's the literal meaning of entrepreneur. And um, I thought... I, well, I felt that especially finance is not adding the value that we need. And I, th I thought not the brightest brain should go to finance. They should go mm -hmm. to invent great things that help the world and not just invent crazy toxic finance instruments. I like that a lot. That's a good motivation to have. And then after you founded Start in 2000, you actually also co-founded brains to venture a platform to find your co-founders, early employees, and also investors. Mm -hmm. Why was that the logical next step for you? Or ask differently, what was missing in that landscape that you filled that gap? Yeah, well, we, we were a group of people um, doing start. And then when our studies ended, we mm -hmm. obviously said, okay, we have to do our <laughs> something ourselves. And then 
I remember doing it directly after I finished and I tried to bring a group of people together. But that didn't um, didn't fly. The people were not that um, enthusiastic and about the idea that was Startnet. We just said, okay, we'd want to um, professionalize the service we did with Start mm-hmm. as a whole year service to entrepreneurs, more or less. And then one year later, um, finally, the group of people was the right one. And then we started and we met for for a weekend, a prolonged weekend at the Alpine Hut. A um, lot of um, flip charts, a lot of alcohol. And we tried to find out the idea of what, what is it, what we want to do. But it was clear somehow that we want to do something um, in the area we were already active, yeah, mm-hmm. entrepreneurship and providing services for entrepreneurs. That was the idea. And that can be a difficult thing, right? Because usually entrepreneurs, when they start out, they don't have a lot of money to invest. So how did you accommodate for that to still build a business around it? Yeah, if we would have been so smart as you are now, then probably we wouldn't wouldn't have gone into this because obviously we had to find out. It's quite difficult to make money with this to to pay our salaries. And um, we had the idea, well, we get a little um, percentage stake of the company but then obviously you have to have a really long perspective to finance yourself till this pays out yeah if you look why combinated it take um 7.5 percent i think equity and more or less that's what we wanted to do but we didn't have the financing and so towards end of the first year we realized with this model we cannot pay our salaries and therefore we had to pivot and what was the pivot then towards to well, we, um, as it was clear at that time, it was at the end of the dot-com bubble burst. Um, and we obviously, we also developed an internet platform to profile and match people, yeah? to profile and match entrepreneurs, potential co-founding partners, first employees and also investors. Mm-hmm. And B2V is for brains to ventures. We wanted to bring brains together to ventures. And then we... Um, we developed this software and we had a lot of collaboration partners like PwC and others. And they said, well, wow, it would be so great to have exactly that knowledge that you have of your people in your platform about our employees because we have no clue what skills they have, where we could use them and so on. And then we started thinking, okay, that could be a, a potential pivot to use the internet platform technology we have developed mm-hmm. as a software for um, companies. Yeah? And back then it was called ASP, Application Service Providing, what's now called Software as a Service. Mm-hmm. And therefore we started back in 2000, uh, uh, a B2B software um, software as a service company. I would Humantis. say yeah. a, a real pioneer for Switzerland, you know, yes. I, you said like software as a service yeah. was, not, was not even a term back yes, then. Yes, yes. We were, we were very early. I would not, interesting enough, because we pivoted from this internet technology, mm-hmm. I would say we were quite one of the very f- early um, software as a service companies. And we was quite an advantage for us to start this way because we were always user-centered. Yeah? We wanted to, we never could force users to do and a lot of P2P um, software, at least at these times, at those times, you had um, the idea you can direct people by software. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And we always knew, okay, the user has to like it and then it works. And therefore we had a, quite a good differentiation because the market back then was not easy. Yeah? There was SAP and others. They're doing, and they were more or less the 
given suppliers for all those processes and therefore we had to fight hard to get into those um, accounts but um, with our approach that was very internet focused it was a good differentiator you you basically had the better product so to speak from a user perspective right yes more simple more easy and it was always interesting because Software back then was, um, the term is not very nice, but it was feature fucking, yeah? That means mm-hmm. how much features do you have and you just compare that. And we were always going there and saying, okay, well, we are better, not because we have more features, but because we have less features. Yeah. And that's even, that's why we are even more expensive, yeah? <laughs> and that was obviously first people, not, not everyone understood, but our customers understood and said, that's the benefit, to have a simple solution that yeah. users can use. And now it's, a no-brainer, but back then it was not clear that this is the most important thing. That's amazing. Simplicity yeah. wins, yes. so to speak. Yes. Now, you, you basically then took the technology that you built at brains to venture pivoted to Umantis. Um, how did that exactly happen? Because I can imagine you, know, you had a team, mm-hmm. you had people that probably said, well, I don't want to follow that step. Other people that said, mm-hmm. oh, that's very interesting. I also want to be part of that. How did that transition mm-hmm. happen to then lead that technology into a new independent company? Well, I'm very grateful. I think we did, we did it in a, in a very good way because um, we were four or five founders and um, we had, when we started, we had more or less equal shares. And even during the time when we had were B2B, um, some of us said, well, I'm still studying and therefore I'm not contributing as much, therefore I want to give some shares to someone else and so on. That means okay. we were quite open back those times. And then also when we said, okay, there are now these two different entities we were discussing in our founder team, who is more personally interested in um, financing of startups, because that was clear that the that B2V would have to go more towards financing, less towards job market and co-founders. Yeah. And who is more into software technology? Yeah, and then it was clear there were two people, Florian Schweitzer and Jan Bomholt, who said, "Well, I'm more into B2B." Mm-hmm. And then Nicole Herzog and myself were more into technology, and Philip Schnedler, the fifth, was more or less in both, but also more towards um, technology at this time. And that means, and then we decided, for example, from the shares how we will do a shared translation. Yeah, that means mm-hmm. we said uh, the, the person that stays into the business should get a larger percentage of those, but we kept even cross um, shareholdings. And then it was still one company for another five or six years, mm-hmm. but with two business units. And then in 2007, we even separated legally. And that was also the time when we separated offices. And um, that was also quite good because at the beginning, Umantis, the software, was more or less financing B2V. Mm-hmm. Yeah? And then you always, B2V felt always as the little entity that receives money and so on. And the moment we separated that, it changed. And we had different phases. There were also phases when B2V... Um, was tremendously important because we were almost going bankrupt with Humantis. And then we did the financing round through B2V to finance uh, the future of Humantis. That means it was mutually beneficial, but at the end it was good to separate because then both 
Manchester could uh, could develop the best way. That's a wonderful setup. And, and yeah. also the symbiosis, as you just yeah. described, you both help each other out in the yeah. right time. Yes. yes That's yes, amazing. Definitely. And also very rare. Yeah. So I also wonder, how do you come up with the right split of the shares? Um, you know, was that a difficult conversation to have or, or to come up with the right amount of shares per person? Or how did you do that? Well, first of all, for us, it was clear that for all external shareholders, we keep it the same, yeah, because we know there are some startup teams that say, okay, we pivot to something new. That's something new, yeah. totally new. We don't, we, we found something new, and therefore no shareholder. We, we said that keep we keep them the same. That means everyone who had ten percent in B two B had also ten percent in Humantis. Okay, and then we, as co-founders, said, okay, we want to more or less keep not not put all eggs in one basket, but I think we said, okay, two to one. That means um, if I go with B2B and I had before 10%, then I should have 20% and therefore I have only 5% of the other or something like that. I don't mm -hmm. know exactly anymore, but that was somehow we, we created a key that more or less um, increased the owning of the shares that you had in, in the company you were, were joining. And it reduced it by the others, and we, we calculated somehow. It was it was a good discussion, and back then our shares were were, were worth nothing. Therefore, it was an easy, easier discussion. If we would now calculate how much millions we were sh shifting around, probably it would have been a <laughs> more difficult discussion. And that's 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 the good thing that I think we always did these decisions without knowing exactly how it will end up, and then it's easier mm -hmm. than later on. Right. And I also made one, we had once a really bad um, situation where we had not fully clearly defined how things will go. And then it was a, a problem for um, also for friendship yeah, because we were all friends. Mm -hmm. And then if, if things are not clearly settled, then it's a, it's a difficult situation. Some say you should never do business with friends. Mm -hmm. I don't agree to that necessarily. But what I think it's very important to really be clear about all the terms and even have it in written. Yep. Yeah? That means you write it down, everyone can agree to it. Because it was more or less a situation where nobody was right or wrong, but we just had different expectations. Um, when when P2, P2V was helping Humantis with the financing round, and we were really almost bankrupt, and the financing round was okay, but not so big that we were swimming in money. Mm -hmm. And then we were discussing even before, because for me it was important to say, well, how we do it between normally gets a fee for the services. Right. And um, then Florian said, well, I, because of conflict of interest, I cannot take the fee from the investors. And I translated it for, I don't take any fee. Mm -hmm. He translated it. I take the fee from you. Right. Yeah, and then that was obviously, and there's no wrong or right, but we just interpreted it differently. And if we would have written it down, then probably it would have come out. Right. And that means, especially with friends, you should be clear on the terms before you start doing business and you should write it down. Yeah, then probably you will await such things. Absolutely. And also, if you look at your co-founding team, first of all, the five people that you mentioned, you know, mm -hmm. that were involved in B2V, you, you then split up and both companies, both individual projects, initiatives were a huge success. 
what made you the special team? What made you the right co-founders back then in the early days? Because that's very special that you have two such success cases mm. with such a small team. That is true. Well, obviously, the team at the end is always bigger. And there's a lot of people, right. also very early em employees or however you were, team members that were also important for the success. But I think that is one that I always also told, tell um, students, one of the best times to s start an own business is during studies. Because especially if you're in a, in a rather good university, you have a really melting pot of a lot of talents. And they have time to do things. Yeah? Some, some just drink around, some others do sports, and some others do activities. Yeah? And we started with START. And there are a lot of other activities at the University of St. Gallen, but also in all the other universities. That means you're working with great people, and you'll get to know them. And therefore, that is a, that's a good starting point to start your business, because you, this density of talents you will never find in the near future yeah? because then you start as a McKinsey whatever yeah intern or so on and obviously they're all smart yeah but then it's a it's a different setting somehow yeah and and therefore this was really um I think that was one that w it was several years of start getting to know the people understanding each other and then saying okay let's let's start it yeah in that regard, what makes a good team, we often hear the sentence, you have to have shared values, but complementary skill sets. Did that sentence also apply to your setup or how would you describe it? Yeah, I was, I personally was always looking for complementarity. Mm -hmm. Yeah, but to be honest, we were not so really complementary. Luckily, we had a, a woman in, in our team. But she had also quite a diff tough stand at the beginning because she was, uh, to be honest, at the beginning she was not really seen as a full member because she was just partly joining at the beginning doing our legal stuff. Yeah? And then she was joining more and more, but then she never got to really, at the beginning, to the, to the state of being an equal co-founder. Yeah, she had really to fight hard uh, that. And on the other side, we also wanted to have her an a guy from the Federal Institute of Technology that we also learned to know by during start as CTO. And mm -hmm. <laughs> that didn't uh, work out. After two or three months, he said, okay, I want to, I want to um, have my Berkeley on the Swiss, uh, the Lake of Zurich, and um, not work that hard. He's now also a successful entrepreneur, but got, got a different way. But that means we were not so heterogeneous as I would like it to see it. But... Um, if you look at the typical um, student from the University of St. Gallen, I would say we were quite uh, heterogeneous. Within and, the, the possibilities. Yes, within yeah. the possibilities, yeah. And, you know, you mentioned that you started right after the dot-com bubble in 2000. Mm. Why was that the right timing to get started with your company? Well, when we, when we started, it was just the dot-com, but it, we didn't feel it that much in Europe yet, mm -hmm. obviously a little bit. But we were in, in Silicon Valley and it was really crazy. Yeah? It was just before and we were going the 101 down and then you see all the billboards with pet.com and petsmart.com and all the radio waves, everything. And just and there was the saying, an IPO is a massive transfer of public funds to marketing companies. And it was that back then, <laughs> probably today also sometimes. Mm -hmm. We had the business plan ready when the bubble burst. And I think for us in the inside, it was a good time. 
because in these crazy times you had to just be very loud, very outrageous and so on. And we were not this kind of entrepreneurs and therefore we were more doing serious business. And I think in, a, in this phase when there's not too much money, you can do serious business and be still successful. Yeah. Yeah. I guess that's also a very Swiss or at least European way of mm. doing business, right? To a certain yeah. degree. Yeah, I think we were good. We were on the on the edge of the Swissness of doing business. Yeah, we were doing vaporware and selling software before we had it, and so on. Obviously, um, now nowadays we would call it co-creation. Yeah, and uh, <laughs> doing it together with the customer and learning from him and having always MVPs. But yes, but overall we were not those entrepreneurs who could have succeeded in a world where it's just about who is the loudest and mm -hmm. who is the most outrageous. Yeah. And if we talk about the business that you did, what was the specific problem that you solved for the companies that bought your software? Well, for companies, it was about, on one side, to understand what competences do you have in a company, how can mm -hmm. I develop those competences, and how can I keep people engaged? Yeah. And also in the talent attraction area, how to find right talents for our company. And to be honest, it's still an unsolved problem. Or let's say the problem evolves and therefore also the solutions have to, to evolve. That means that the, the solutions that we developed back then would not help today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's a, But the, the main problem, and that's always yeah, to find the right talents for your company and then to keep them engaged and give them the opportunities to to be successful at the fullest potential within an organization, that's quite a challenge still today, and especially for big organizations. Yeah. I guess that's probably the biggest problem you have to solve as a company to stay successful. Well, yes, I would obviously say so. But if you ask a communication expert, he says communication is most important and that is, I don't know. But I, I think a lot of people I have talked to that, that were successful, um, in larger companies that said it was always about the people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And and I, I tend to agree that to have the right talents um, is, is the crucial factor. Yeah. I mean, you also see that with startups, right? You know, once you hit the product market fit, you have a certain threshold of revenue that mm -hmm. you passed. Then it's not about how can we develop the, the product further or how can we win more clients. That's the machine that's already running, but it's really about attracting the right talent to grow further and beyond mm -hmm. where you are just right now. So it's really the talent that is at the core, I would say. Yeah. 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 I would also like to talk about the challenges. You briefly mentioned, you know, in 2000s, software as a service was not even a term mm -hmm. back then. You had the traditional software companies like SAP that were in the market. So did you have to educate a lot of sort of old fashioned people to, you know, take a leap of faith and say, hey, we're going to try this new software from Umantis. Well, that's that's what I really like about Switzerland. And I'm in Austria doing business in a lot of countries, Switzerland, Germany, US, Asia. I would say the best place to start a business like this in continental Europe is Switzerland. Because there's so many people that give you a chance. If they think, okay, you're... you're 
seem to be serious. Um, I like the idea you're going, I give you a chance. Yeah. Mm-hmm. For example, in Austria, you have to have a huge network. In Germany, you have a, a huge list of references before a lot of people buy you. But in, yeah. in Switzerland, I remember, especially the first customers, that's important. Yeah? The first customers were quite courageous to, to work together with us, but they believed in us and believed in our vision. And but it was obviously difficult at the beginning. It's always to get the first customers. And for us, a big breakthrough was when Micro um, decided to use our recruiting solution. They were more or less a poster child um, customer of SAP. And then the market was think, you meant what? Yeah, who, wh- who is this? What they're doing? That Micro uses recruiting software from Umantis. That was a big breakthrough in Switzerland. How did you win them over? Because you mentioned you were probably more expensive than the existing solutions mm-hmm. out there. So it wasn't the price. What then stuck with them that they decided to switch to your solution? One thing, we we got a few fans within this huge organizations that really liked us as a person. They probably also were not so happy about SAP and their business conduct and so on and they knew it's quite expensive in the running of the software to have SAP. And they also understood that it's about to convince um, the applicants to use such a system and not send via email. And they didn't like the solution that SAP had back then. It was really, really like you bookkeeping your application, yeah, and that, yeah. that doesn't work. That doesn't sound attractive. No, no, it's not attractive, <laughs> and therefore, but it was it was quite a tough decision, and we also had obviously to to come down with the prices there. But if you win Miko as a reference customer, but we did not mm-hmm. win on the price front, yeah, but we just had to be competitive somehow. Sure. And you also mentioned you know, that Switzerland is the perfect start mm-hmm. market to actually launch such a product. To what extent does it also help that you are based here in Switzerland while the others might only have you know, salespeople here but are not really based in Switzerland? And to also be Swiss yourself. I know you're Austrian, but some, <laughs> some of your team um, were, were Swiss citizens. Yeah. Did that also play a role to have a good connection to, to win them over as clients? Or was it just the, you know, how the market is set up that they are more open here in Switzerland than in Austria or Germany? I think... The Swissness, although a lot of people think I'm I'm German because my 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 German is not very Tyrolean as it should be, um, <laughs> was but it was surely uh, helpful, yeah, um, because there is this connection. And what I also long didn't really understand that Switzerland is just one little market that is very close and connected, and that is. That, that was the mistake, for example, when we went to Germany or to US, yeah, to think, okay, it's just one market and we concur it as the way as we did Switzerland. And that's a different mm-hmm. thing. But Switzerland is a very close market and that means you can also not do, you can make mistakes, obviously, but you cannot um, fool your, your clients. And, yeah. and that's, if you're coming out of Switzerland, if you're doing business in Switzerland, people assume that you're, honest person and doing serious business and that helps obviously yeah. yeah and then at a certain point you of course also realized hey switzerland it's a good starting point but as an overall market probably too small to build a big business 
So first of all, when and how did you realize that? And how did you move forward after that? How did you then tackle the international expansion to attract new clients from other markets? Well, that was quite clear from, from the start. And we tried out of Switzerland to to win some customers. And we also were quite successful. We won one of the big first customers were Bayer Sharing and Fraunhofer and <laughs> BW, BMW. We tried several times. We always um, didn't succeed. There were some customers that were really reluctant to go with such approaches. Mm-hmm. But they were just like little birds and we never could gain the main traction. And nowadays, what if what I would say, if you want to conquer Germany, well, now it's changing with COVID and remote sale we were talking about before. But back then I would have said we should have moved f- at least some of the founders to Germany to a certain area mm-hmm. and then start from there and saying, okay, for example, Frankfurt, greater area, or Düsseldorf, greater area, or Berlin, greater area, whatever. That is the starting point and starting path. And there you have to win the market and get the momentum in this in this city, more or less, mm-hmm. and then grow out of it. Same, same, even more um, relevant for US. Yeah. 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 Because you always think it's one big market, but even the big global success stories like Facebook and others, they started as specific universities and then get getting momentum there and then growing from there. And not just saying, okay, we are everywhere and we're winning everywhere a few customers. That doesn't work. Is that also due to lack of focus that you have, that such a plan of we are everywhere probably doesn't work out? No, it's a, it's a misunderstanding. that Because what, what I realized, to win one customer just standalone is always the same effort, plus minus, yeah? Mm-hmm. The moment you have one market, however you define it, yeah, somehow at a certain threshold of of customer density, then the amount, the effort to win a new customer decreases dramatically. That means that is when you get the momentum, mm-hmm. and that's depending on a market, yeah? and it's not depending. And obviously, Germany at once. For a startup, our size is not that easy to do. And therefore, you, you have to start in a market. For example, we were quite successful in Germany in the public sector. That can also be a, a market. Yeah, That of means course. you have just, doesn't matter where regional it is, but it's just public sector. And there were, we had a team that was just serving public sector. And then with time, when you have, I don't know, in Germany, 30, 40, 50 communities working with Humantis, then for the 52nd community, it's not a big risk anymore. Yeah? And that's, that's exactly the point. And therefore, yes, you have to get to this, um, to go international in the B2B. Yeah? It's, it's a different mm-hmm. thing in B2C, but in B2B, it's about um, winning, defining a clear market size, a, a good niche, and then focusing fully there and keeping it and it was always, we sometimes tried it, but then we, we said, okay, now we're going for pharmaceuticals. And then you could be sure then there were a lot of other industries coming to us and we were winning there. And then we said, okay, pharmaceuticals doesn't work. <laughs> no, you also have to then, you have the discipline to, to follow your strategy mm-hmm. for a certain time to be successful there. And we were more startup that always was pivoting because we always, the 
grass on the other um, garden was greener than <laughs> where we actually were. Um, but nevertheless, we were lucky to be successful, although we did so many mistakes. It's that time of the year again. Swissblur is gathering feedback to become better at advancing entrepreneurship in Switzerland. If you'd like to give us your two cents, please reply to our user survey. Everyone who replies will get free Swisspreneur socks and stickers to sweeten the deal. Check the show notes on this episode for the survey link. And hey, thank you very much. And to sum that up, I think it's, it's really important, very helpful what you just mentioned, focusing on that niche mm -hmm. to then grow there. Mm -hmm. And the benefits are basically you have more reference clients, maybe mm -hmm. even word of mouth. Mm -hmm. People then trust you. So in the end, mm -hmm. it's really all about building that trust. Yeah. Something that you had from the beginning because people mm -hmm. here in Switzerland give it to you without yeah. you having to deliver something before. Yeah. You, you cannot like uh, mess yeah. it up, but you have that right. up front. Well, in Germany and other markets, you have to have some first reference clients or word yeah. of mouth to then be able to grow yeah. out of that. Yeah. And also what I've learned the hard way, and we, we lost millions in the US, for example, what I've learned the hard way, when a new category is, is arising, then is the time. And if you wait too long, yeah, then we were going to US much too late, yeah, much too late. Mm -hmm. And then even though the market is, has not a clear market leader yet, and it's still very... Um, not very clear where the market will go, but at least you have 10 or whatever vendors from this market that are there since years and they have very good products that totally fit. And if you then come and say, okay, I'm coming from Europe, fine, it's not good, not bad, but then they ask you, why should I go with you if you have more or less what the others have, but the others have everything that I need and uh, exactly this point. Right. It means if, you, if you're going in a new category, then you should not miss this time. And therefore, either you go rather early mm -hmm. or you just leave it and wait yeah. for the next wave. Yeah, there will be a next wave, but for us it was really difficult and we, we lost billions in US without having tremendous success. Yeah, obviously we won Nike, yeah, global wow. brand and some other global brands, but there were just these one-time shots and not having sustainable business uh, yeah. coming from that. And that's that's um, that I would do differently today. So you would say that you missed the right timing to tackle the US market in that regard? Yes, we should have gone to US probably in 2002, 2003. Much too early for where we stay, stay. but then probably we would have played the game there. And what I also have seen is all the companies that were successful in US from Europe, or most of them in B2B area, mm -hmm. they were more or less seen as an American company to American customers. Yeah, SAP, yeah. if you ask an American in, in, in whomever in the business field, SAP, this will tell you it's a US company. Yeah, of course. Yeah. yeah. And, um, and the same is true for Logitech. Yeah, I, I, we were we were really blessed to have Daniel Borrell as one of our shareholders, and he gave us a lot of wisdom and a lot of tips. And I remember we always tried to invite him for start um, in in Zenga, and we never re we didn't come through. And then when we did our tour in in Silicon Valley. 
we were writing, hey, we are stu Swiss students and we are now in Silicon Valley. Do you have time? And somehow this worked. That's really interesting because nice. in Switzerland, obviously, you're not special if you're Swiss, but there it helped. Yeah. And then the first meeting we had with him was in, in Silicon Valley in, in their headquarter there. And um, it was really, yeah, and he was totally American. He had a Hawaiian shirt and a gold uh, <laughs> chain around his neck. And um, the next time we met him was in, in, in the French-speaking part, and there he looked like a, a Frenchman yeah? with a foulard. And, uh, and, yeah. <laughs> and that, that was really something that, that I have learned. You have, for them, it has to be an American company in the way that the, pe the person they're talking to is the person that makes the final shots and the final decisions. Yeah. Yeah? It means that they feel, okay, I can discuss with you. And then if you tell me I get this feature, then I get this feature, whatever. Yeah? Yeah. And if they feel they're talking to a subsidiary, then it's really difficult. Yeah. Well, amazing learnings. I, I feel like yeah. we could just do one episode of how to go to the U.S. or to cover the learnings <laughs> from there. How to not go to the U.S. <laughs> Fair point. <laughs> then an another thing yeah. I also like to talk about You were CEO of the company for 12 years. Mm. And, you know, with the change and also the growth of the company, you also basically need different skill sets as a leader. Mm. So how did you keep up with the changing demand on your skill sets, on your talents? Well, I kept up for, let's say, 12 years. But then I, I was asking myself every year, yeah, mm -hmm. am I still the right person for what the company needs? And that's, that's also a tip I give every leader once a year to ask yourself. Yeah? And then if you ask yourself the question, you will see it if you're still the wrong, right or if you're already the wrong. Because that was something that stuck from me, to me from the um, studies at the university, this Greiner curve. That means most of the company crises come from the leadership. Yeah? And I didn't want to be the bottleneck as a leader to... to um, make the company not growing as fast as it could mm -hmm. and as successful as it could. And therefore, when I was seeing um, my then uh, successor doing a project in a totally different way as I would have done it and seeing the fruits of it, then I decided, okay, now it's the right time that someone else should take over. What were your thoughts in your head back then? Like, you know, how did you realize that it's the right time to let someone else take over? Because... I can imagine also emotionally, yeah. you basically built your company. Yeah. That's also a difficult step to take and to admit that it's now time to step down as CEO. Yeah, that's luckily I'm never fully aware of the consequences of my decisions. And that's probably why I'm an entrepreneur. <laughs> <laughs> Always optimistic. Yeah, optimistic or just not thinking of the consequences and just doing what you, what you think is right. Yeah? And then mm -hmm. you feel the consequences. And obviously all those decisions had pluses and minuses. But that was because I was aware of and didn't want to get into this um, trap. I was looking at it and then we had two projects and one on additional to what we are doing and one was um, doing for an analyst. Uh, they do more or less the rankings for the software presentation and the other one mm -hmm. was for a big potential customer. And I was then taking the lead in the one project and he was taking the lead in the other project and we were doing more or less um, and also we're cross-working in all these projects. And 
I was doing it the way I am doing it, like a pioneer. I was trying to do everything I could myself because I didn't want to add additional efforts to all the others because they were already fully worked. And and he was starting the meeting and said, okay, this is a really great opportunity for us as a company and we have to really work hard. And then he was distributing um, stuff to do, additionally to what they already had to do. And it's not about the result because... We got a very good ranking and we didn't win the customer. But what I have seen is he was so integrating those people that as winning a good ranking, it was, okay, Herman has won a good ranking and I could contribute a little bit. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And in the other case, I have seen the how this joint effort was creating proud and pride of what they have done together yep. and also had some a lot of consequences because what was done during this preparation had also quite a lot of influence into the product that means i have seen what i'm doing is just a one trick thing and he's working with the whole organization and he's i don't know how you call it he has he can do that i cannot do that asking people to do even more if they already um, fully booked and and then i've seen that's the right that's probably now it it created the better results for the company. Mm-hmm. Therefore, it said, okay, now it's the right time to hand over. How fast did then that handover happen? Did he then just say within two or three months, okay, I'm, I'm leaving and now someone else is taking over? Or how do you also communicate and prepare yeah. people in the organization for that? And that luckily, um, I did already a real fuck up with uh, the handover of Start. Yeah? Well, fuck up, it, it ended up, great yeah but it was really at the edge because i said okay that's a bunch of entrepreneurs i don't care about succession planning there's a new generation they should do it and we handed over 300,000 on our bank account and the next generation of studies just spent this money within one year doing movies about social entrepreneurship in south america flying with a whole movie team there and so on really wow. crazy stuff yeah yeah and then staff was more or less bankrupt and out of this experience, I probably did it differently. Um, it was a process of one and a half, two years yeah, to um, first get sure myself that's the right thing. Then to talk to some others. We had a very good chairman, external chairman at this time, who was responsible for the SAP international success, Hans Schlegel, really great great guy. And, and with a lot of others. And then I talked to Mark and then we discussed that and then at the end because I wanted the whole team to follow this this, this decision we, we did a base democratic um, decision as you know from the Landsgemeinde in Appenzell or so on and no, we did it even anonymously because I thought it's an important decision mm-hmm. and um, and then the more or less team decided that he should be the next CEO yeah. wow and then after you basically left the CEO role, so the other person was in charge, what did that do to you? How did you feel once you then, you know, came to the office and realized, hey, it's not me who's in charge anymore? Did that change anything for you or how, or how did you feel? There was one experience that was really eye-opening for me, even before we handed over. And then the other things came la- later. This one eye-opening Mark and I, this means my success and I, mm-hmm. was having a meeting with two people f- that are specialized in organizational and people development. That means they should be the experts. Yeah? 
And then we were sitting there and we had a meeting. As all the meetings I experienced, yeah, we were sitting there. He was my sales guy for them. And we were discussing and they were looking at me and asking me the questions and I was answering and so on. Just And then in the middle of a two-hour meeting, I probably said, okay, yeah, and from next month, I tell you now, it's not official yet, but that you know, he will be the CEO of the company. And that moment, I could have left the room. Wow. They were only looking at him, talking to him, asking his question. I was more or less irrelevant. And that was really tough, but <laughs> it was and almost rude, yeah? But that has shown a lot. And for me, that was really helpful in realizing that obviously, if you're in a leadership position, you think you're in this leadership position because you're so great and people talk to you because you're so smart and you can help them and blah, blah, blah. But at the end, how much of that relates to your role and not to your personality, it's really, it's it's humiliating a little bit. Yeah? Um, but that's the truth. And therefore, I, I now have a totally different um, view of what leadership means. But that was the short and the long term. I realized that sometimes, obviously, I was missing this um, feeling of being that relevant. I never, uh, I'm, I'm quite easygoing normally, but sometimes I, I missed it. And, but really hurtful, it became only when we also did um, integrate our company in a, in a German, very good company there. And I was then also in the executive board there. And um, then there was a leadership change. I could not, um, I, I was obviously not involved. And and then there was the decision that Mark, as well as I, are not needed anymore, put it that way. Mm-hmm. And um, and now, although we did this, also this decision democratically, that means the whole company decided, okay, we will do that. And I felt I'm not in charge at all anymore. I'm not in the, not even at the table to make to take these decisions. And they are now decisions that are really hurtful for me. But that's, I don't know, you probably, such things you cannot change, but I, it's, for me it's difficult. Uh, some people say, okay, I do, do an exit and then I'm away, but we have one customers, we have mm. people there, and then you see somehow the company going in a direction that you would not um, like it to go, then it's, that's hurtful. Uh, I didn't feel that too much back then because luckily Mark was a really good successor and I have seen him doing decisions that I thought, wow, that will ruin the company. But I luckily understood that if he should do it differently, uh, better than me, then he has to do it differently than me. And therefore I had to at least endure a little bit his decisions. And most of them were great. And therefore then you gain the trust that this is a good decision and it will work out. And But... The moment you have people taking the helm that you don't agree and you also see results that are not good, then it's a problem. If they would be great and the team would be great and customers would be happy and the company would grow, uh, sure. probably no issue. The, the situations that you just described, thank you for, for sharing mm-hmm. them so openly, that can really also hurt on a personal level. You know, If, if people just ignore you in a meeting, etc. how do you pick yourself up when you're being hurt that much did you do anything because i can imagine if, if that happens to me mm-hmm. that must feel terrible yeah it's an interesting point you know 
that's also something that I learned. Nobody can hurt you. Well, it's not physical. Nobody took out a knife True. and hurt me, really. That means yeah. they hurt you because you feel hurt. Yeah? Yeah. And most of the time, it's about disappointment. That means you probably were thinking wrongly, and then you get, get it corrected. That means I was feeling I'm smart and people are talking to me because I'm smart and not unlikable and not because I'm just the role of the CEO. And then you learn that. And that means it's not that this person wanted to hurt me. I feel hurt because I had the wrong image yeah, of myself. Yeah. And therefore, obviously, it's hurtful, but it's not the person that hurts me. And that's, um, and that's in, it's often the case when you feel hurt, you're not really physically hurt, obviously. And therefore, it's yeah. your decision to feel hurt or not. Well, that, that, but that's a very strong perspective to take. Yeah. That there's a quote that I once read. It says, just because you feel bad, it doesn't mean that somebody else did something wrong. Yeah. I think that's a really, really good fit here. But still, you have to be in that position to then detach that thought and say, oh, they didn't do something wrong. I'm feeling hurt because of myself, of my expectations. Yeah. Yeah. But that needs to, quite a, a strong ground to be able to take that perspective. Well, that is that is the analysis in the afterwards yeah yep. and but it sometimes helps me to not take myself as too important but i also see so for example areas where i'm really struggling and it's more in my in my private life in my in my family I, in a company it's interesting yeah i can really really easily let go and trust others and do it the way and um, I have areas, as I said, for example, family where it's not that easy and where I experience most, more those of those things that you would now ex assume that I experience in my business life. Yeah. Now I feel like we could do a whole series with you of different episodes <laughs> about these interesting topics. But there's yeah. one point that I certainly yeah. do want to talk about is you already briefly mentioned the merge with the German company. Mm -hmm. So that happened in 2013 when you merged with the Haufe Group. Mm -hmm. Can you walk us through that deal? What happened there and how did it lead to that decision that it's actually a good time to merge the companies? Well, there was, uh, first of all, there was a, a window of opportunity. One of our US competitors was going public with 30 million revenues, 45 million loss at a valuation of 1 billion. And that was wow. back then, yeah, in, in 2000 and. 11, I think. Mm -hmm. It was crazy. It was just crazy back then. Nowadays, it's normal. Yeah? <laughs> it's, it's, it's just not, uh, not normal that they don't do that much loss. Yeah. But um, exactly. Then I felt, okay, there's a window of opportunity because a lot of venture capitalists were calling us and so on because obviously they were now screening the market. They've seen, okay, P2P is interesting. Talent management is interesting. Software as a service is interesting. And they were screening the market and we were the market leader in the German-speaking market. You Therefore, checked all the boxes. We checked the boxes, exactly. And then they were calling us. And then I said, okay, that's a window of opportunity. And if we miss it, then obviously there will be others that will be better financed and doing more stuff. And then it will be mm. difficult for us. And then we were looking at all the different options. And there was always in, in the involving the team and explaining what options we have. And to be honest, for a long time, I thought we would go with another company um, with three letters I already mentioned. Because they they also experienced then that we had a lot overlapping customers and they somehow found in us something that they didn't have and they wanted to have these competences of software as a service, simplicity and so on. Mm -hmm. And they also 
made a really good offer. And then uh, Hof was coming there. We, we were working with them together since quite a time in a collaboration. And I thought to them, I remember the day I told them, well, nice that you're interested in, but I don't think that a company with those basic familiar roots will pay this crazy valuations. And to be honest, valuation is not everything, but obviously I have also some responsibility towards our shareholders and others. Mm -hmm. And then at the end, we decided not to go for the best deal financially, but with SAP, I never found out if we really could run this business. To whom would we report? What would we do? We just knew, okay, we get a lot of money and probably after one year we out and they do whatever they do. That would have been an exit like that. But we wanted to accelerate the development of our company not having an exit. And therefore, Hofweiss was a, a good option. And we had a very, to somehow mitigate these differentiations in valuation, we said, okay, we start now with a 30% stake that is at a reasonable valuation, by far not what we have, would have gotten with SAP. But then with a business plan that we believe in we could reach, it would get in the area of, of the other offer. And we said, okay, that's, that's good enough. We also would have, if we were very optimistic, we also could have had a, a better result. But um, yeah, at the end, it was, it was really fine. And for us, it was the right decision because we had... Um, seven, eight more years of really good development of the company, a lot of fun, a lot of successes, obviously lots of, a lot of troubles too, but it was a good experience for me and for the team. Why did you decide to put yourself through that additional stress, you know, to have a pressure to deliver, to have a good outcome instead of just taking the SAP money and run away? <laughs> that, that's, that's a really good question especially in, 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 in the hint side, because obviously in this, the question is what could I have done in the seven or eight years with all this money, starting something new, right. out of the experiences and so on. But for us, it was not about, it was never about making a lot of money. It was about realizing a vision. And we thought with, with Hoff we could realize it better and we were really on a lot of fronts we could do that and therefore um, I, I I think it was the right decision I'm not so sure anymore when I look at and at entrepreneurs like me that are good in starting businesses not so good in 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 then scaling up probably for me it would have been better to get out earlier and to start something new did you notice any negative side effects of, you know, going into that scale-up mode, that, yeah, that sort of a price that you had to pay personally? Yeah, well, I I never fully adjusted to such structures, yeah. That means I was always a little bit the exote in the, exote in the company and doing stuff that others probably didn't dare. Um, but I didn't feel that, that I had that much leverage. Yeah? I and I'm always, when I'm into something and I feel the responsibility and everything, then I feel doing the right thing because I do the best I can do. But in hindsight, when you look at it, I probably could have had a better leverage um, doing something different. Yeah? That means what was my marginal contribution to the success during these years? 
I really don't know. During this time, I felt obviously I'm important, I'm needed, I'm doing things. Mm -hmm. But yeah. having gone for SAP, then exit after one year fully out because you don't like how it is there and then doing something new, probably would have a different trajectory, yes. Who knows? Probably in, I would now sit in, in Silicon Valley because that probably would have done. Or in somewhere in China, I don't know. But yeah. Any <laughs> any is, regrets about that decision, or are you fully happy in the line, or do you think, well, it could have no, been have, different? No, well, I I'm so blessed and I'm so lucky and had so much fortune and I have also such a great family. Therefore, no, I have no regrets. The only thing that I would have done different if I would do it again, I probably would have gone for a longer time to Silicon Valley. Yeah. Why was that important to you? No, I think, well, now it's differently. Luckily, yeah, Europe is catching up. <laughs> yeah. But back then, I think the spirit in, in US and the possibilities were much greater back then. But obviously also the competition. Yeah, and therefore, sure. perhaps I, I would have been a failed entrepreneur in, in US and successful here. That's, I don't know. But um, I think I should have been two, three years, and then, I don't know, see how it feels and, and how it is. Yeah. But I'm, I'm happy now that the Swiss and the European venture scene is so accelerating, and I think that is also something that is really good. And I'm happy to be a small part of this too. Absolutely. And now with the exit, you, of course, also made some money personally. Mm -hmm. Did that money change you in any way or change your life to a certain degree? Well, obviously it changed, but luckily, because of our long um, exits, it, it doesn't, didn't come all at once. Because if yeah. it would have gone all at once, it was would or, already all be gone. <laughs> I, <laughs> I, um, I did a lot of um, startup investments that were really nice. And for example, View is a good example. Uh, I was the first investor there. And also chairman at the beginning, and I could help, especially at the beginning, very much. And also some other investments I really like, and that's great. Yeah, but the idea I wanted to put in reality came out of really a long story. But once I thought, okay, I just want to make a business to earn a lot of money, not to do something great, yeah, because I felt this hassle. It was during a time at Humantis when it was really difficult. And then this idea arose. And the, f <laughs> the funny thing is the business I thought I would earn the most, I lost the most. Yeah? I invested really, I don't, want to, I don't want to count it, something two to three million just in one business idea. And I literally flushed money, the toilet down. But it was also a good experience and a lot of learning. And um, if I would have read the book Clean Startup earlier, I could have found out that you can find out if customers want to buy your product even before you have the product. Yeah, that would have saved me a lot of money. It was expensive, but um, it helps now. And I also invested um, one million into Austrian politics to change something there, and I couldn't. And also I learned there a lot that especially in this area, money is not helpful at the beginning, at least. And therefore, I'm happy that it came in, 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 in different tranches so that I 
could learn before I have had lost everything. <laughs> I think, yeah, that's a great learning. Again, a great topic for a potential other episode with you. <laughs> so, of course, we also now wonder what is next for you in the future. So we heard about your startup investments. Yeah. You have been involved in, in politics. Yeah. What is next for you? Do you plan to start another company or what's, what's on your map? Well, well, when when we were more or less forced out out of Hof, Mark and I were almost immediately jumping into next startup, and we tried to do um, a Tinder for recruiting uh, because we thought that should be rather easy. And we made a really cool product, and but then there was around this time last year, around Christmas, when we found out or we realized that it will not be just run away hit they just launch a product and it will scale like crazy it would be a long process we would have to invest a few years and then we asked ourselves is it the right thing to do now yeah what would we tell our now little kids once they grow older and then they ask us hey the world was burning you could do whatever you wanted you had all the means and you had no better idea than just to start your next business idea We thought, okay, that's a bad situation to be in. And therefore, we said, no, we want to do something about climate. And now we are doing 42 hacks. And everyone is invited. Every Friday, we do a Friday climate hack, two hours. Some say it's the two most meaningful hours of your week, um, where we hack um, in different iterations, our idea is to activate more people to do work on climate solutions and to accelerate existing solutions into mass adoption. That means crossing the chasm for existing climate solutions. And we now started with railways, public transport. It sounds a little bit boring, but it's really there's a huge potential because when you compare the innovation rate of railways to the innovation rate of roads, it's dramatic. That means there's a huge potential to really have a huge impact for the climate and also for business. Yeah, I think there will be also business opportunities, but first it's mainly to um, to contribute to to the climate, and we want to have more people, including ourselves, working on climate solutions. Yeah. Amazing! And where can people join? Can I just uh, yeah. visit a website or? Yeah, go to forty two hexcom four two hexcom Perfect. And whoever is a little geek understands what the 42 means. And yeah. Amazing. So to wrap up today's episode, we have some rapid fire questions for you. (laughs) So I either give you a choice of different options or a quick question you have to answer in one sentence. You ready? That's difficult for me, but I try. Yeah. I'm sure you'll do fine. Regret making an investment or regret not making it? Not making it. Why? Well, I have seen a few investments that were on my table and I didn't decide and they were become unicorns. But I also know there are a lot of others that didn't. Therefore, it's not really a regret. What's your biggest uh, red flag from an investor's perspective? Not being able to work in a team. Mm -hmm. Founder or investor? Founder. That's an easy choice. Yeah, that's easy. (laughs) How many hours of sleep did you get last night? Last night? Um, five, I would say. Well, that's not that much, or is that normal for you? Like not that's probably yeah, five, five probably is my average. Yes, okay. What does money mean to you? Leverage. Nice to 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 get something done. 
And what's the best piece of advice that you have ever gotten? I, if I just put it that way, you will not but say only hire lucky people. What and does lucky was, mean? That was Daniel Borrell. And I thought, what a stupid answer. <laughs> and I, I, it took me years to understand it. Because when you do interviews, mm -hmm. then sometimes people say, okay, I was at this station and then I had an, I had a bad boss and therefore I had to go there or the business didn't develop. They always had something out of their um, ex um, area that influenced them badly and therefore they had these things. And then you, you see others that said, hey, okay, I was there and I had the luck that this happened and this happened. And therefore, and I understand it's, it's more a state of you if you see the luck and you can use it or if you see the bad things. And therefore, yeah. only hire lucky people is really, really great advice. That sounds amazing. The last one for you today, St. Gallen or Zurich? The future lies in the combination of both. And I'm working at the MBAX. That's the first master that is jointly done. And I think there's a huge potential. And St. Gallen and Zurich is more or less the same. <laughs> it's like a suburb of each other. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Herman, thank you so much for stopping by today. It was a lot of fun and a real pleasure talking to you. All the best with whatever you're tackling in the future. And yeah, take care and stay safe. Thank you, Silvan. It was great. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you did, you can support us by rating our show on Apple Podcasts. This way, we can reach an ever-growing number of aspiring entrepreneurs. <laughs>